Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. My name is Will Krause. I am one of our non-staff elders here at the church, and it's been a minute since I've uh, had a chance to teach on Sundays, and I've been grateful for that rest. In that time, we've had another baby. Uh, my, yeah, that, that's great. And then um, it's and hard, too, but it's, it's so great, and uh, my wife's been a trooper. Uh, work's been pretty challenging over the last uh, couple of months. We work in schools, and so we're kind of like a teacher. At this time of the year, we all can smell summer break. <laughs> Teachers, we're almost there. <laughs> we're almost there. Um, and uh, I feel very fortunate to come out of a teaching sabbatical and then get a text like this, um, Genesis 15. It is, it is a good word for us this morning, uh, and that has nothing to do with every, anything I'm going to share. Um, I feel very fortunate, and I think you're fortunate as well that this was assigned to me, because a text this big, if Richard or Will would have been assigned this, you'd be here for three hours, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, I do want to say, uh, just as a side note, um, my family came down with some sickness last night, so I've been distancing myself a little bit this morning, and I'm not 100%, um, but what's cool about now being 100% is that it just makes more room for God's strength, and that was true for the first service for me, and I'm excited to be here, and honestly, this, this text has really connected the dots in my soul in some powerful ways just from sitting in it for the last several weeks, and so um, the elders called this morning and was like, hey, we can step in. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that. Teach a sermon in like hours notice. Um, but uh, they've, all, they've both done it before. And I was like, no, I really want to really uh, see this through and get a chance to share what God's put on my heart for us this morning. So um, we'll get to chapter 15 in a second. But a, a couple of things I want to replug that were mentioned are one thing, and then I want to celebrate something. Member night, we need you there. So if you're a member, I just want to ask you as an elder to show up and be there. This is uh, a unique opportunity. We don't do this often, um, a few nights a year, where we gather everybody, we feed you, we fellowship, we worship, but we also cast vision for where the church is going and what's going to be happening this year. And there's some big things happening this year that are honestly tough to just communicate over email. And so we want you there. We want you a part of those conversations. Um, it's hard to build culture without coming together like this. And so we want to give you the chance to really invest with us in our culture. And so I just want to ask you to be there next Sunday. It's going to be great. Uh, and then we got to highlight this before we keep going. We had something awesome this weekend called 24 Hours of Prayer. I, I was so encouraged by the intentionality of our prayer team. Can we just give our prayer team one big clap? Um, Every hour, starting on Friday, going up until Saturday evening, uh, for 24 straight hours, we, our church was praying, and they were praying for very intentional things on the hour. I was assigned, or by assigned, I chose uh, the midnight slot, so Friday night at midnight for until 1 a.m. Uh, it was just me and the prayer team leader there, and so it was a nice, uh, fun, intimate uh, hour of prayer. Um, shout out Raven Howard. <laughs> and... <clears throat> when we finished at 1 and we were passing it off to the next crew, there was only two people on that call going from 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. And I was just so encouraged uh, as we were chatting. I realized they were actually praying earlier in the day for an hour. But they learned during their 9 o'clock prayer time that we might not have people praying at 1 a.m. And so they came back just to make sure we were praying for 24 hours. I thought that was so cool. 
Um, and so what I wanted to do before we jump into our text is really just thank God, but ask him the fruit that hopefully was being cultivated uh, this weekend, that that would grow in our church, uh, and then he'd be with us this morning. So y'all pray with me. <laughs> Father, uh, we, we do thank you for all the things you invite us into, the things that you allow us to be a part and conversation with you, relationship with you, uh, is one of those things that I think often we take for granted. But God, I thank you that we got a chance to spend a, an unusual amount of time just crying out to you, asking for things in our church. And Lord, while we, we ask that, that you would give us your hand of favor this year, that you would uh, meet us with those prayer requests, God, we pray more that the posture of our hearts would change as a church because we cried out to you, because we spent time praying to you, that our dependence would increase. And so we ask that that be true, not only for us corporately, but for us individually. I also want to just ask God that right now as we get into Genesis 15, uh, that we would see your goodness in a unique way, that we would see your intentionality uh, in a way that we've not seen it before, but that is really so clear in this text. I pray that you would help me stay out of the way, that your spirit uh, would move in this room and would connect the dots for us this morning, not just with head knowledge, God, but with heart belief. We ask that, and it's in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we've been studying the life of Abraham in Genesis. We started in chapter 12. We're going to do some quick recap, because if it's your first time here, you're jumping in, the context is really important today. Uh, you could say in a way that Abram's going to score a touchdown with God in chapter 15, but we want to know how we got there. How do we, how do we work down the field uh, to get to this point? So in chapter 12, we see God uh, calls Abram, and he says, uh, go. <laughs> he tells him to go, to leave where he's from, and to, and to follow him. And he says that I'm going to make you a great nation. He makes a lot of great promises. He says, whoever uh, blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. But in chapter 12, we see Abram follow that call in incredible faith. It's ironic, though, that he says that I'm going to make you a great nation because, again, what's unique about Abram? He has no children. He's, his wife is barren. He's unable to produce an heir for himself, yet God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. In chapter 13, right after Abram has struggled a little bit in Egypt uh, with some poor choices, we see him uh, have this conversation with Lot. Lot's his nephew, and uh, they basically need to split up and go different directions. And so we see that Lot makes a decision based on sight, and we see that Abram makes a decision based on faith. Uh, and God honors uh, and really blesses that decision that Abram made, makes. And then in chapter 14, where Lot chose to go was near Sodom. It wasn't necessarily a bad choice. How he made that decision is what we pointed out uh, in that week. But he goes to Sodom, and there's these kings that come in, and they just ransack Sodom in chapter 14. Uh, they take it over, and Lot is captured. Think prisoner of war, if you will. And Abram forms a military response, 318 uh, trained men go after this army, and they free Lot. They free the people uh, of Sodom. And you see this conversation happening, right, with these two kings. Y'all remember it last week? King Melchizedek, uh, and then also the king of Sodom. King Melchizedek, a priest king, very unique. If you didn't watch last week's sermon, you should go back and just watch how happy Will is as he's talking about nerding out on King Melchizedek. That was my favorite part. Um, he, get, he asked permission from the teaching team to nerd out, and, we, and I was like, yeah, you, we sh you should nerd out, and he did. So go back and listen to that. Um, but also we see this uh, conversation with the king of Sodom, 
And Abram, uh, what, what the king of Sodom says is, hey, let me keep my people, but have all the goods for yourself. He offers up this great reward, this great treasure, this great wealth to Abram. And Abram's response in chapter 14 is remarkable. I'm going to read it again. He said, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. What do we see him doing? Deflecting his own glory to reflect God's glory. He's saying, I'm going to make sure that nothing gets in the way of people knowing that God is who gave me victory. God is who's going to make me a great nation. What else is he doing? He's making himself vulnerable. He's turning down resources that would be pretty darn helpful (laughs) if you're thinking about, like, I could really use these. I could use cattle. I could use wealth to establish this great nation. But he places his dependence fully on God, making himself vulnerable. This is a dark and scary world that Abram's in. I know our world is dark and scary in many ways, but he's literally uh, leading a nomadic people, doesn't have a land really that's been uh, fully secured as his, and he's surrounded by all these nations, these groups of people that would absolutely overtake him if they given the opportunity, that most of them all have larger armies than him, significantly larger. I don't know um, if you've ever watched a kid try and jump off the diving board for the first time. But there's, uh, there's, there's, there's definitely phases to this. So phase one is, like, just get them on the platform, right? Like, they've climbed stairs their whole life, but, like, it takes an hour at least to just get them up there. I mean, every kid's different. My middle child, he's just going to run off the diving board. I'm sure of it. Um, but it takes some prodding. Then you've got the whole tiptoe out to the edge, and, oh, no, 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 that's deep. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I'm ready for this moment. And then there's the classic, like, fake out one, two, three count. Okay, one, two, no, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. It's just the pool's deep. It's high. It's a new experience. But yet, hopefully, eventually, right, they take that leap of faith. They jump in. They know that they're not going to drown. What's Abram doing? Why do I paint that image? He is fully jumping in with God. He's made some decisions that are absolutely based on his faith and his belief that what God says is true. He's made himself vulnerable. Here's a question before we dive into our text for you Is your life on a trajectory? that makes you increasingly vulnerable as a child of God? Are you making decisions that give you a better footing in this world or a better footing in the next one? Are you putting yourself in positions where God's got to come through or I'm done? Because I think if you don't know the answer, (laughs) that's your answer, (laughs) right? Like when you're vulnerable, you know it. It's uncomfortable. There's nothing about our world that promotes this kind of vulnerable living, this kind of reckless faith. But Abram is all in, so much so that God's going to do some awesome things in this text. And consequently, because he does not for Abram, it's for you and I as well. So let's jump in. Genesis 15, verse 1 says this, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. He says, do not fear, don't be concerned, don't be alarmed. I know you've put yourself in a vulnerable spot, but I've got you. I'm here with you. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your reward. What's a shield? We don't use shields, really, in combat. 
If you don't know what a shield is, go watch Captain America. He's the best example I got for how to use a shield. He gets the most bang for that shield. A shield deflects the enemy's blow. A shield protects you when the enemy is swinging their weapon, when arrows or spears or swords or Thanos is attacking you. A shield is what preserves your life, keeps you safe. And Abram needed a shield. Again, he's vulnerable. He's surrounded by people who would love to conquer him. And this is a scary time. But God says, I've got your back. I will be your protection. I'll be your shield. He also says, I'll be your very great reward. I mean, he had me at reward. But very great reward is what God says. That word in the Hebrew is sakar. It means wages or reward or pay. Abram had just, again, denied himself all these goods with the king of Sodom. These goods would have been absolutely a form of security, provision for his people, protection, uh, security and something to be valued. But God says, I'll provide for you your labor in me, your labor in my name, Guess what it earns you? Me. That's what God says. He says, I'm all that you need. And that's his point here in verse 1. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. You are not lacking anything with me. You've got me. But in verse 2, Abram's going to remind him what he is lacking. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. It's hard to interpret tone through writing sometimes, right? Like we all have that friend. We're like, are they upset on the text thread or are they okay? We're not sure. Um, for, that, for, for me, that was my wife uh, in the early ages of our relationship. Uh, so she was not as into me, we'll just say it like that, as I was into her. And I'm trying to get to know her. Her name is Margaret, and so I remember uh, being real intentional, and like, okay, she's got this exam on Monday. I know she's been studying for it, so I'm going to text her on Monday. So I text her on Monday, and I'd say, hey, how was, your, how was your exam? Hope you're doing well, thinking about you. And her response back was, it was great. Thanks for asking. Hope you have a great week. And I was like, I just got have a great week. Like, that's awful. No smileys, no punctuation, like all periods. I was insecure, but I was a mess. My roommates had to pick up the pieces. So I was like, she just have a great week to me. Tone can be hard to pick up on in writing, but what's key to understanding Abram's tone here with God in this conversation is the word sovereign Lord. That is Adonai. Adonai would be a title for God that means deep reverence. It was a humble posture. Abram's not whining or complaining here about not having a kid. But he is saying, what's the point of giving me all this reward, building me into a great nation if I have no child, if I have no heir for it to continue on? Whatever you're building or doing through me, it's a dead end because I'm old and I have no heir. What Abram is doing is so common for us. Do you see it? Because God's not fulfilled his promise yet, Abram has now traded the truth for a lie. Because God has not fulfilled the promise yet, because his circumstances have not changed yet, Abram has traded what God said was going to be true for a lie. 
See, the truth spoken to Abram was in chapter 12 when he said, your offspring is going to outnumber the dust of the earth. There's a lot of dusts in the earth. He says, your offspring will outnumber that. But Abram's conclusion is, no child, God. So maybe what you meant was Eliza of Damascus, a servant in my household. They're actually going to just inherit whatever you're building through me. You could say that he is evaluating the Lord's faithfulness based on his current circumstances. Now, that's something that we never do. He's evaluating the Lord's faithfulness on his current circumstances. But let me, let's all admit there's tension in this life with God. There's tension in the gap between his promises that we know are true, but our current reality. Like you've said in Romans 12, 19, that justice and vengeance is yours, but I'm still being treated unjust right now. You've said that you're going to provide for me, like Matthew 6 talks about with the birds and the flowers, how well he provides for them and how more valuable are we, but I can barely afford rent in Charleston. You've said you work all things together for my good, Romans 8.28, but my child is still running towards destruction in their life. There's a tension between what God promises and a lot of times where we're currently at, our current circumstances. So it begs the question, why is God so slow? Why is he so slow? What is this space in between promise and reality for? I'm going to let that hang for a minute. Let's go to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. God comes in with truth, reminds him. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Then he took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So he's already said, your offspring is going to outnumber the dust. Now he says, look up, look at the stars. You're going to outnumber the stars. How many stars do you think you can see with the naked eye? Anybody have any guesses? How many? Thousands. If you're in downtown Charleston, eight. (laughs) You're like, I know exactly how many kids he's going to have right there. One, two, three, four, eight. But if you've ever gotten away from the city, away from electricity, been in a remote place, maybe the mountains or the desert, like what is it like, right? They're crashing down on you. They're everywhere. It's kind of cool that they're always actually there. We just can only see them sometimes. Research says you can actually see 10,000 stars with the naked eye. There's no way I can count that accurately, but that's what they say. You know how many you can see with a telescope? 50 million. It's crazy. God tells him, I'm not just going to give you a child. I'm going to give you millions. Your offspring will be like trying to count the stars. There'll be that many. But here's something you may not realize. Abram's promise of a child is still 15 years away from this, this, this message from God. 15. Like for you and I, it's a couple chapters. It's five minutes. But it's 15 years from when God says it twice. I'm going to be, you're going to have more offspring than the dust and more than the stars. But for another 15 years, he'll wait for that. Why is God so slow? What is this space in between his promises and our reality for? Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him 
as righteousness. This is a profound verse. You, you really, you cannot oversell how meaningful these 12 words are for every single person in this room. It cannot be oversold. And I, and I know what it's like to sit in your shoes. We usually come to the 11:15 service when I don't have a role here. And struggle to pay attention in the sermon. Like, I get it. It's hard sometimes. There's a lot going on in your head. You got a busy week, and it's just easy to daydream. I think Satan would want you to do exactly that when you think about this verse and miss what this is saying. This is a, a, a life-changing, eternity-changing statement. God is really establishing what salvation is going to be like. And what he's saying is you and I get right standing before God because of our belief in God, not based on what we do. It's not based on how consistent you are. It's not based on how sinless you are. It's not based on how far away it was since the last time you failed God. It has nothing to do with what you can do, actually. It is based on your faith in him. This is a linchpin verse that will be referenced multiple times in the New Testament to, to help the readers know it's not by works that you're saved. It's not by the law. It's by faith. And this is that proclamation that God makes. Let me work through this verse backwards. Let's start with the word righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. What is righteousness? It is the moral standard of being right and wrong based on God's divine standard. In other words, God decides what is right and wrong. And what God says is right is a life without sin. That's who he is. He is a, he is a being that does not have sin, that does not make mistakes. To be unrighteous then would be to have sin. Where do you find God's divine standard? All over. All over his word. I'll save you some time. You can't fulfill it. Romans 3.23 says that. That all, which includes you and me, have fallen short. All have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. So there's the second question. If, if we know what righteousness is, well, why do we need it? We need it because the penalty for sin is death. So without righteousness, our only option is death. God cannot be in relationship with sin. And so without righteousness, we can't be in relationship with God, which leads to death, which really is death. So in order for him to be in relationship with us, he's going to have to deal with sin and death, which, of course, we know that he does. So if I know I need righteousness, well, then how do I get it? Look in your text. He credits it. He credits it to you and I. That word credited, it's an accounting term. In the Hebrew, it's hasab. It means reckoned or to assign value. So we know that God is the one who assigns righteousness. So then the last question is, how does he assign it? The first part of the verse, the action. Abram believed the Lord. God assigns righteousness by faith. Everybody say faith. Now, one important distinction that I think is so important for our context in the South where Christianity uh, as a religion can be very popular to proclaim. It is not believing in a God or in one God that saves us that counts as righteousness. James deals with that. 
He says that even the demons believe there's one God, and they tremble. They shudder. For some of us, the demons are farther ahead than we are. There are many people who claim to believe in God, but don't even fear his name. God assigns righteousness by believing, not just that he exists, but believing that what he says is true. By believing God. It's faith in the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are saved by grace through faith, not by our own efforts or works. Translation, there's no amount of money you could give this church. There's no amount of money you could give God, put away, give to the poor that would make you righteous. There's no amount of time that you could give away to make yourself righteous. There's no amount of Bible you could read to make yourself righteous enough to please God. There's no amount of purity that you could attain in your life to be considered righteous. It is only faith. That's what this says. It is only faith. That is what God accepts and what he credits, assigns value to as righteous. This is so backwards for us. We get this so upside down. We're not being assigned value based on what we've done. It makes no sense. But those are the terms of salvation for God, and praise God that that's what it takes. Because which of us could earn it the other way? Which of us could actually please God with our own righteousness? I don't know if you've been coming to church week in and week out, coming to community group week in and week out, going into your world to try to please God week in and week out, trying to stack up more good days than bad, trying to distance yourself from your past, from your sin. But it's not based on your ability to obey. It's not based on your ability to follow his commands. In the courtroom of salvation, to the one who has put their faith in God, this is crazy. You stand before him today just as righteous and justified as you'll ever be. That's a, that's a big thought. You stand before him today. You can't be more righteous than you are today. Doesn't matter what kind of life you live. Now, James talks about the tension between faith and works and that our works do validate if we had real faith. But that's not today's sermon. Let's go back to see how Abram deals with this truth. That he was counted as righteous because of his faith, because he believed God. Question for you, and I got the answer, but was he circumcised when he was counted as righteous? No. He had not been circumcised yet. It wasn't by any obligation to the law. Was, had he accomplished all that God wanted him to go do in his life when he was counted as righteous? No, he's just starting out with God, you could say. But God says that he's righteous. Had he been believing God this whole time? Actually, yes. This was not a one-time uh, belief or faith in God. He'd been doing it this whole time when he chose to leave his home, when he chose to say no to these resources from this pagan king. He's been walking with God and believing him and putting his faith in him. But notice that even in his belief, there is room for doubt. You could say room for weakness in his faith. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. 
God is reminding him of what he's done. He's taken him out of this land, and he's brought him here to take possession uh, of a new land. But verse 8, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Abram says, give me some reassurance. Show me, show me a sign that I'm going to actually gain this land. When we ask for a sign from God, or we ask for reassurance, when we have doubt, you could say, that what he said is going to actually come true, there's two postures in how we ask. There's one of arrogance, and there's one of humility. Arrogance would be like saying, God, prove this to me. And he were really asking him to do something so we can just disprove it. Or we can justify our own decisions. A posture of humility, again, look back at the word he says, sovereign Lord, Adonai. A term for deep reverence. Give me a sign. Show me that this is going to be true. There's going to be moments in our faith where we're weak. Y'all ever had a moment like that? There's going to be moments on this side of eternity where our, our faith is weak where we need God to step in, when doubt might be present. Here's the, here's the thing. I just felt like I needed to share with you this morning. The presence of doubt does not mean you did not have faith. It actually validates that you did have faith. You can't doubt something you don't believe in. I'll use a silly example. These chairs you're sitting in, you believe that they're going to hold you up, right? Let me tell you, if you go to the Grace City office, there's some chairs in there that will not hold you up. There are some jankety chairs in there. And you might look at that chair and think, that leg is not going the right direction. I have some doubt <laughs> that that's actually going to hold me up. But the presence of doubt, really just acknowledging some uncertainty or a pause, does not mean that you've not been having putting your faith in something. You still believe chairs hold you up, but you got doubt. You need a sign. Hey, Plunk, you sit on that first. You would not pause or experience doubt if you did not first believe. God is gracious to Abram, though, in his response. As he asks for a sign, he's going to give him so much more than he's asking for. Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. For us, we're like, this, this got weird. It went a very different direction than what I thought this sign was going to be. For Abram, it's not weird at all. This is culturally relevant language for him. He knows exactly what God is asking him to do. He's saying, let's make a covenant. Everybody say covenant. A covenant, um, in our terms, we might think of it as a contract. Uh, that we are pledging to do this thing, you do this thing. There's, there's a period of time that we've said we're going to do it, um, and, and, and that's, a, that's a covenant. But really, that's a, that, that's, a, that's a weak, cheap example of what a covenant really is. A covenant was an exchange of loyalty. Fix that in your brain. It's an exchange of loyalty. It's saying that I'm going to be loyal to you now forever. So if you made a covenant with somebody, you were saying that we will now be loyal. And oftentimes what would happen, or part of the ritual was, uh, for this particular covenant, this was the most serious of covenants, because it meant something pretty dark. You have this uh, splitting of animals, and first of all, the animals are three years of, of old, which just means it's an expensive sacrifice. These are animals in their prime. Uh, they, you would have not have preferred to just, yeah, let's just get rid of the three-year-olds. Those are the best. 
And so it's an expensive offering, a sacrifice to one another. And what they would do is they'd split it in half. That's kind of gross. Any hunters in here? Show of hands. Who likes to hunt? Anybody? I got a couple. All right. So I didn't know that. Um, so if you've ever cleaned a deer, uh, you know, or if you've ever had to split an animal in half or cut into an animal for some reason to get the meat off of it, it's, it's messy. Like I got a picture of what this, I'm just kidding. We don't got a picture of that. <laughs> you don't need a picture. You get it. There's blood and guts everywhere. There's, there is on one side half the carcass and the other side the other half of the carcass. It's a disaster. And there's blood all in between. And what would happen is two kings or two leaders would walk through the blood together. And by doing that, they were saying, I am pledging my allegiance, my loyalty to you. And if I break that, may I be split in two like these animals. May I be killed. This was a big deal. This wasn't just the Jack Sparrow, you know, handshake and blood thing. This was a big deal. And so, um, but what also would happen sometimes is sometimes the kings weren't equal. Sometimes it wasn't like a strategic alliance of two nations partnering together. Sometimes, let's just put it in our terms, it was like from a military standpoint, the U.S. versus the Bahamas, right? The Bahamas is like 50 miles off the coast of Florida, this small nation of islands and and great people. I've gotten to go there several times. But it would be like uh, the Bahamas coming to the U.S. leader and saying, hey, I would like to make a treaty with you because you're massive and you could just crush me. And so what would happen is in those terms, the words were uh, the suzerain and the vassal. Weird words, but one meant the, the greater king, one meant the lesser king. So in our example illustration, the Bahamas would be like the lesser king, the little nation that's sitting there next to him. And so what would happen is they would make, they would walk through the blood, but only the lesser king would. Does that make sense? The greater king has no reason to. He could just take over this nation if he wants to. But what the lesser king was saying is, don't crush me, we'll be loyal to you. And they would walk through the blood by themselves as the vassal king. They would pay taxes to them. They would send troops to fight their armies uh, and fight their wars. They were saying, I'll be loyal, and if I break my loyalty, then go ahead and crush me. Does that make sense? So that's what a covenant was. If you're Abram, you've got to be so excited. Like, he says, give me a sign. I mean, he could have given him just another dream and said, look, this is you playing in the land one day with your grandchildren. But instead, he says, let's make a blood covenant. Abram's excited. The best illustration I heard was from our sending church up in Greenville. The pastor up there talked about it like this. It'd be like going on a fourth date with somebody. And the girl's sitting at the dinner table, and she's like, I just want to know where we're at. Like, let's have the DTR, you know? Like, where, where, how are we doing? And it'd be like the guy saying, you want to know how we're doing? And he stands around the table and says, marry me. And she's like, I just want to know if we were going to keep dating or not. But that's great to know that you're that committed to me. That, that really is the, the visual of what Abram's response must have been like for God to say, let's make a covenant. But it's not going to go exactly how he thinks, Abram. Verse 11, the birds of prey then came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Quick funny story, we, we had some buzzards in our neighborhood getting after some roadkill, and my family was on a walk. I actually wasn't there, but I got the video of it, so there's proof that this happened. And uh, buzzards are pretty big. Buzzard vultures, they're probably something different between them, but they're, they're the same thing, right? And um, my little four-year-old is like, Mom, Mom, look at those big chickens. 
and she's we're laughing about it, and she's laughing in the video, and she's like, those aren't chickens, those are turkeys. And I'm like, those aren't turkeys, they're buzzards. But they're big, and they look like turkeys. We used to call them road turkeys down in Florida. And, uh, you know, they're motivated to get their food. Like, you drive 60 miles an hour, and they don't move, do they? They're just right there on the side. Um, this would have been a challenging task for him. He's got birds of prey coming down on these carcasses that he's split. He has set the proposal table perfectly for God. He's just waiting. He's just waiting on God to show up. And, and there's commentators think that the birds of prey is a, a symbol or illustration for the oppression that's going to happen on God's people uh, when they go to Egypt. But what we do know is there's enough time for these birds to find them, for these buzzards to come down and attack these carcasses, and Abram has to drive them away. There's space, which again makes us ask our question, why is God so slow? He said, go, get, go, go prepare a covenant. He does. He waits. He has to fight off birds of prey, waiting on God. Why is God so slow? Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. I mean, that stinks. What's he talking about? Egypt. When God's people would be enslaved by Pharaoh. Can you imagine being the leader of this promising, going to be a great nation, and, and, and the plan, God says, let's make a blood covenant, and you show up, and God speaks to you in a dream and says, here's how it's going to start. 400 years, you're going you're gonna to be a slave. 400 years, you're going to suffer. You're going to lose. Which brings our question back. Why is God so slow? Why 400 years? Why is he so slow? What is this space in between promise and reality for? What's that gap there for? My honest question is I don't know exactly. We're not God. I don't know why he does what he does. But what I do know is that 2 Peter 3.9 speaks to the slowness of God. We have it on the screen. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the, the truth is this gap that we sit in, it's some form of kindness from God. Whether that's to allow for Abram's family to grow, for God's chosen people to be added to the numbers, maybe that's uh, a kindness that allows for our faith and our love for God to increase the idea that in this gap, in the tension of what's going to be true versus what I experience now, that's when we really learn to walk with our God. That's when we really learn to cry out to him, to depend on him, to enjoy him. And all I want you to know this morning, and it pertains to this verse, God's working in the gap. He's working with you in the gap. Your marriage that's been on the rocks for way longer than you thought, he's working in that. To the single who's been longing for a family, been longing for, for marriage, for kids one day, and feels like there's no progress being made, he's working in that gap. It's not useless. For the person that's been struggling with mental health, the pandemic's only made that even harder. He is working now 
And at the same time, his promises are still true. His promises are still true even if our circumstances have not changed. Look at verse 14. That's evidence of it. He said, though, in this dream that Abram's having, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. He says, I'm going to punish the nation. I'm going to punish Egypt. Does he punish Egypt? Oh, yeah. They get theirs. But not for a long time. But that promise that he made in chapter 12, that I'll bless those who bless and I'll curse those who curse, that comes true. But he's going to do some work in the gap in between. Verse 16, very, very sobering to think about the idea that God does not just dismiss sin. He does not just look the other way, but that there's this period of time where he's just waiting for the Amorites to have enough of it, and then, he, then justice is going to come in. For you and I, we got to know God sees our sin. He sees the sin of the world. He sees the sin of our countries. It's a scary thought to think that he's just waiting for it to reach its full measure. But there's good news in this, and it's coming here. Verse 17, this is the climax of our whole text. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch torch (laughs) appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And in verse 19 through 21, it goes and talks about all these people groups that are currently occupying it, that he's going to give it to God's people. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, there's a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. This is a massive plot twist for what Abram is expecting. What is the smoking fire pot? What is the blazing torch? That's God. Right? Like you think about all the times in the Bible where God was represented by a cloud or represented by fire when he was with Uh, his people in the wilderness, leading them by a cloud, leading them by a pillar of fire when he was on Mount Sinai uh, and and smoke uh, appeared, when he was talking to Moses uh, through the burning bush, when he would bring fire down to consume uh, uh, sacrifices. This is God literally walking through this covenant that he's made with Abram. But notice who doesn't come with him, Abram. Just God walks through it. That's a, that's a really important detail. What's Abram doing? Sleeping. It, it tells us a couple of things. One, how unneeded we are <laughs> to do, to, for, for the work of God and for the will of God to happen. And two, how we can tr- truly just rest in his presence. How we can just sit and enjoy him working. What is, he do? What, is, what is God saying by walking through it to Abram? He's saying, I am going to give you my loyalty. I am going to be the one that fulfills this covenant. I will be loyal to you regardless of whether you are loyal to me. Did you catch that earlier with the lesser king and the greater king? He walks as the lesser king. He does the work of the lesser king, the thing that we should have been doing. This is a huge detail for us that our God, 
signs a, a covenant, cuts the covenant, and he does it based on his own name, his own work. The burden of fulfilling this covenant is going to fall solely on God. Abram's not even a part of it anymore, except for the fact that God has pledged his loyalty to Abram saying, regardless of how unfaithful you are to me, today I seal my promise through this covenant that I will be faithful and loyal to you. This is a big deal. The nature of it reminds us again back to verse 6, that he says, it's faith that credits you as righteous, not works. Back to our covenant, God's saying, there's nothing you can actually do to mess this up or affect the outcome. It's all based on me. It's all based on me. This promise I've made to you, it's not based on anything you can do to hold up your end of the deal. It's on my name, solely on my work. If I fail, let me, God, be split in two like these animals, is what he's saying. But since I can't actually die, this covenant lasts forever. That is, a, that, that is so good news for us. What does forever mean? It, I don't know. Exactly, it includes 2022, you and I, our children. Like, this is, a, this is a promise that God has made that's continuing to go, continuing to be true. And it depends solely on his work, not our work. But know this, and we know this to be true from the rest of how God is going to fulfill this covenant. God didn't just decide to ignore sin anymore. This wasn't just like, I'm just going to look the other way in regards to sin. He's going to have to defeat sin. He's going to have to defeat death. And he's going to do that through his son. This is cool. The penalty that we would have deserved for failing that covenant, because we couldn't have made that covenant. We could not have pledged our loyalty to God and been consistent in it. We would have suffered the, the, the penalty of that, which would have been death. But God says, I'm going to actually let Jesus walk through the blood and suffer the penalty, be broken in two for your sake, so that you can now be in relationship with me. What an awesome God we serve. Amen. What an awesome God we serve. Ben, you can come on up. I was thinking about this and how in the middle of the, the gap between promises and reality, we have to remind ourselves, God's made a covenant with me, and it can't be broken. Doesn't matter how my week's going, doesn't matter how my year's going, God's made a covenant with me. I need to remember the promises that he has declared. And I think just to give you some thought to evaluate your own life, there's a couple of markers, if you will, of, of what it would look like to be living out the covenant, to be living out this truth. First and foremost, I think, is gratitude. The idea that you can't, sit, you can't sit in front of this story, see what God's done, and not be grateful. You've not heard it. He's made a promise to you to always be there for you, to work on your behalf, not based on anything you can do. And just believing in him, that actually counts you as righteous to him. There's, there's really no response other than, than gratitude. That should be a part of our lives. How are you expressing gratitude to God through your prayer life, to the way you engage? I think the opposite of grat gratitude is entitlement. Are we just expecting him to do things for us? Do we feel entitled to things or are we grateful? Joy, to me, is a marker of somebody who really has heard this, who really has put their faith in God instead of obligation. So we, we joyfully sit in his word with him because of what he's done, not because not we feel like we have to. 
or because we feel obligated to. We joyfully give our life away for him, leveraging our resources for him. And the last would be rest. That a marker of someone living out this covenant would be someone who is able to just rest instead of worry, recognizing that my soul, my eternity, my salvation, it sits fully on the shoulders of God to do the work. All I have to do is have faith in him and believe. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.